Welcome to Frontline. Hello and welcome to episode three of Frontline and in this week's podcast we will be discussing service user engagement. My name is David Gill and I'm Andrew James and we will be taking you on today's journey so thank you very much for listening in. Hopefully you've listened to episode one and two so far. So we're here to talk about engaging with people and I think one of the things we probably should start off with is the different types of engagement, because I, I think when we were picking this as a title, I think it's such a general title. It's probably going to be one of those that might require, probably will require some follow-up episodes. But I think for me tonight, it's it's just about us discussing, I, I guess, the, the challenges with just getting in, that engagement, that introduction, that maybe assessment process, whatever it may be with people, whether that is fully voluntarily engaging with people so someone actively comes to us wants help wants support they're choosing to do it we can work with them and build that relationship up or maybe the the next step where they are probably pushed to do it maybe they are pushed to get support and help because of the situation they're in might be to do with their homeless and having to access housing teams or uh, substance use services because maybe uh, their, their drugs and alcohol cause problems at home and they're told if they don't do this, this will happen. So it's, I guess people may be pushed towards doing it because they feel they have to. Or And then the, the last area, which I think is possibly the most challenging one, which is the forced statutory stuff where people have to access services, whether it's for criminal justice reasons, whether it's because of other safeguarding issues or maybe other mental mental health services where you have to engage otherwise there's going to be some serious repercussions mm-hmm. so i think we're not going to go into too much detail in all those three but i think it's important at the beginning we recognize that thoughts on this whole world of engagement andy what do you think i think engagement is one of those classical things where it's always no matter what you're always going to have a risk of uh, losing people but I guess it's all about to start with appetite as you mentioned there you've got the situations where people are coming to you uh, to deal with an issue specifically I think obviously there's going to be a greater chance there is going to be drop off in that but there's going to be a greater chance that if someone is committed has made that decision themselves that they're going to be open to working so there's going to hopefully be less resistance in that mode obviously not none because ultimately you're trying to coach someone, assist someone to change something that could be a well-ingrained, quite problematic habit, whatever that may be, or change a situation that's become ingrained as habit, so that you're always going to find some resistance in there. But it would be, yeah, it would be my thought that you know, obviously, if someone's voluntarily come to you, they've made that decision, they've made that connection in their mind. This is an issue. I need assistance to deal with this because I can't deal with it on my own. And I've I've consciously sought out some assistance. So you'd hope that people in that situation would be more open to the challenge ahead. In terms of other areas, I mean, as work in practice, I've been in 10 years in criminal justice. So my working knowledge has always been of the statutory, which then does bring up a lot of some interesting some just downright undeniable problems immediately of um yeah you, you're always going to find barriers in that situation so it's about trying to find your ways in which you can get that connection however permanent or temporary to get to get things through and listeners for everyone who's who's listening andy's a lovely guy but in his day-to-day job, people aren't always going to be wanting to see him. So how do we deal with that, Andy? How do you deal with that? A lot of it comes down to, first of all, kind of identifying what the kind of difficulties are. For some people, and I know for myself since coming to London, um, the age groups of the people that I see most regularly, I think has dropped a little. Hmm. Uh, previously, up in West Yorkshire, 
yes, you'd see people a whole gamut of adult ages, but the general find, your, your general fall previously for me would be around about the mid-20s to possibly late 40s. It'd be, it's a big band, granted, but that, that would be your main fall. In, since I've moved to London, so last three years, I think I've really seen a fall into that from really to about 19 to around about early 30s, which isn't a isn't a huge shift in terms of numbers. But first things first is it's a huge shift when it comes to maturity. And you will see or you can see huge difficulties with uh, people, especially people who've been through statutory services at a younger age throughout the juvenile years, formative years, some people will just simply either clam up, will will engage to a point, tell you what you, they think you need to hear just to coast through. But a lot of that, a lot of it comes with a level of immaturity, which means it can be, engagement can be, well, almost non-existent at times. And then <laughs> it, it comes very much in a, a fits and starts. You mentioned there about the immaturity, I guess, mm. For argument's sake, could we maybe look at it the other way in that people have had such bad experiences in their own life that you, in front of them as a, I guess, a authority figure, because let's face it, that's what you are, mm. holds so much power over them. This, rather than, I guess, maybe an immaturity, is it, could it be maybe seen as sometimes as like people just feeling really unsafe and it's about that person trying to protect themselves, thinking that if I act in this certain way, this might keep me safe? I think certainly, yes. Again, it's it's a it's a difficult thing to talk about in, in a general sense because as you know, something that you and I will always bang on about till we're blue in the face, you deal with the individual that's in front of you rather than anything else. But, yes, certainly you'll get... Um, situations where people will clam up and freeze because of the negative experiences that they've had and then a lot of that working with people in that situation is about making sure trying to break down those barriers and then just to connect on a human level which ultimately isn't that what we all want but still don't know why that sounded a bit speed dating but there you go well <laughs> the reason the reason i mentioned immaturity and i guess perhaps that was a slightly incorrect phrase on my my account perhaps worry, what I'm, I'm, I'm always ready to jump on in there don't worry yeah <laughs> but perhaps what i meant more than immaturity was uh low lower maturation yeah which yeah it's ostensibly is the same thing but it's a uh, put in a very very different way of um just that 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 development that understanding because a lower lower maturation you might see people who are more impulsive lack of consideration for other people's thoughts and feelings uh, grandiose or negative self-image perhaps mm. is easily influenced those sorts of characteristics not all but perhaps a combination of and uh, that can bring with, with it itself a lot of different challenges that was my first notice of uh, being in London and noticing the uh, the age bracket of the average clients has, has dropped, which is, it was an interesting one for me. So I guess with, with that then, if we're focusing on that that group of people who have to access services, like we said, for, for, for criminal justice, for, for safeguarding reasons, mental health reasons, where you have to engage with that service, if you don't, there are negative repercussions. With that in mind, then, what is the biggest challenge? What what can what, where does it come from? Is it literally that person meeting you for the first time? Is it the type of questions? Is it the sheer length of the engagement? What do you think tends to be the biggest challenge? Um, in my experience, the biggest challenge generally come from trust, which is the most basic one because obviously they don't know you, you don't know them could be negative previous experiences and even if there isn't even if there's no previous experience that in itself is a cause for concern and a cause for anxiety and then the second part of that which is connected is intention so you might be in the, the criminal justice sector you might be asking people questions about if they've got any children asking their, about their children's uh, names dates of birth when they could be in front of you for something, for example, like a, a driving with excess alcohol matter, for example. And the first thing in their mind is, why are you asking me that? 
What's that got to do with anything? What are you going to do with that information? You'll find that people, people who have been through criminal justice system a lot more and a kind of old fay with how it goes uh, seem mostly to be numb to it and will just provide the information because they know that, that that's the process now and that's what they have to do but you, you you will get sometimes you'll get people who have no previous experience of it or people who will openly challenge most sides that they don't see as relevant how, how do we handle that then because like i say this this is a, probably a day-to-day challenge for you Every every practitioner will have their own own views on what the best way or, or how they've learned to deal with those sorts of uh, challenges. I've developed my general way of doing it is just try to be as plain and open as possible. Where if someone's questioned why I'm asking about their children's date of birth and where who they live with or where they live, I'll simply just explain to them. Well, look bad things happen in society i'm not i'm not saying you are one of these people but often when talk about children ch- children's safety often you'll appreciate that some people will tell lies and terrible things can happen to children now if there are no issues any checks that get done will show there are no issues and it goes no further but you have to appreciate not everyone tells the truth and if if you still get kicked back from that and they refuse then they refuse it's the the courage and your convictions of knowing that you're asking it for a reason. You're not doing it to be difficult, to be challenging, and to accept that there will be some pushback on it. But as you said then, if we know the rationale and the reason, and that we are as transparent as we possibly can be to say, this is why, exactly what you said there, we are doing this for a reason, to protect, to protect, to help, to support. And I'm telling you this, this is the process that we're going through, and if there is still pushback on that, you know then you've done whatever you can to get that information. And if there is still pushback, then you've, you you know you, you can still do something with that, that pushback. It's still telling you maybe there is something worth exploring as well. But the key thing there is that, that I think that courage and that trust to know that we're doing the right thing. Because it's, it's not easy, is it? When you've got a human being in front of you getting upset, getting frustrated and pushing back on us. Well, yeah, and I think this is something that it serves to kind of remind yourself of this every now and then. You know, you may have been doing the job for 5, 10, 15, 30 years. It may be the fourth, fifth person that you've seen that day. And whether you wish to or not, sometimes your processes can get a little bit automated. You can run through because you know what you need to ask to get your piece of work done or the document done that you're completing the interview for so you understand the reasons behind it you know everything that goes on behind the curtain whereas ultimately this could be this person's first ever and only ever exposure to this particular situation they haven't got a clue what goes on behind the scenes they, they don't have any idea of, to use the phrase they don't know how the sausage is made for example so, so, so sometimes you have to you have to give a little information back just to go well look you know, it, it may seem like it's just questions at random or things that are completely unconnected, but there is a reason, there is a process. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, how sausages made, it's such, it's, it's such a good way of... <laughs> <laughs> Even though someone may have been through the system several times, they may have unfortunately gone through the system, particularly criminal justice, and we assume that they know how it all works. They might be just so used to going through the system and saying certain things they still might not be clued, clued up with what's going on. And if, let's be honest, there are there is unfortunately some not so good practice out there. If that has happened previously, they are bringing all of that negative experience with them to us. So I think sometimes we've got to realise that there are people who may, may know a bit about it. There might be people who we think have been through it so many times, they know everything, but actually they may have been let down repeatedly or not given the best sort of service. So every time we have to assume, like you say, they just don't know what is really going on behind the scenes and we're doing whatever we can within within limits, of course, to give that level of transparency to make sure people know what's going on. Because I don't know about you, but I'm the same. If, like, if I'm suddenly in front of a process and I don't know what's going on, I'm anxious, I'm confused. Why are you asking me this? What's going on? The moment someone will explain to me what is happening, I become a little bit more at ease. Because you suddenly you, you suddenly know the why, and I think the why can be the most powerful thing in a situation like this. Well, yeah, I think that's 
to a degree, I think that's just uh, simply human nature. I've I've always been. I, I guess that's just my, my kind of learning style. If, if if I know why something is important and what it brings to my benefit, I can learn and pick things up much much quicker. Whereas if it's just a simple bolt on, I find it a little bit harder to ingrain that into just general uh, working patterns. But yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's it's the not knowing that causes the anxiety, which causes the discomfort. I think the the other main, as as I mentioned before, the the, the trust in the um, statutory service. Perhaps I missed out one big factor, which is surprised me that it slipped my mind. But uh, the main, the I think uh, the the one overarching thing could be the power differential. Someone has been effectively forced into this uh, position by by the law, in a position by the courts. And then this conversation, their their control of their flow of information is literally the only bit of power that they have left in that scenario. So that the ration and control of that is the only way they have to kind of keep a grip to that. I think that power imbalance is so important to talk about because I think it's probably at this point we, we might as well talk about that other cohort that I mentioned about people who are actively engaging with the service for a reason. They want to get help or support and they are not being forced there for any particular reason other than maybe the situation they are in deems them to need them to access the service. But there is a lot more free will involved. And I think sometimes what we forget, it's the same whether you're in that service or statutory, there is still a power imbalance. I, I often describe it to, to, to people I work with who say, oh, there's no power imbalance. People walk in, we're a welcoming area. And I'm, I, I'm so, I get that. I get that that's your, your values and your ethics towards this, and it's a great thing to do. But the fact is you're still stood there with a lanyard around your neck saying member of staff. And I think the moment you have that, you have that image, whether you like that power imbalance or not, it's there. What you have to do is do your best at levelling that power imbalance. And let's be honest, you pro- it's never going to be fully leveled out because you are still in a position to decide whether or not someone gets some level of help and support. Even how you conduct those initial engagements, those assessments, whatever it may be, it is a power. It is a power imbalance to truly recognize, to truly deal with that. So you need to recognize that, I think. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And that, that's something that I didn't really consider it as strongly before as perhaps I should have done. There is absolutely that power dynamic. It is a different power dynamic, but it's certainly still present because it's there's still the overarching presumption that they they have approached a person has approached you for that assistance. It, it's almost a um approaching an expert for the extra assistance. It, it puts you in a quite a strong role that you need to very much take seriously. Because you work in the third sector, you'd think I'm here to help. You know, this is just what I'm doing. I'm here to help. I'm here to support whatever it may be. But you've got to remind yourself of that power imbalance. Like you said, it is different to statutory, but it's still there. And think about, I know I'm here to help, but that person might not have a clue. They might not understand that we're here to help. They may have had a, such a bad experience in the past. Or might, this might be the first time they access the service. They don't know about the process. They don't know about how within that first engagement i am i might ask really intrusive questions as you said earlier on to do with their mental health situation or to do with their substance use you know these things or their criminal history which when you're not used to this process or if you are used to the process and you've been let down it's horrendous because you're basically saying open to up to me as a perfect stranger give me all this information and i might i might be able to help which i think we sometimes just don't give it the credit that we perhaps should, how much that initial engagement can affect things. Often just trying to put yourself in that mindset of what it must be like for someone to, for the first time to come into contact with a service, the, the absolute lack of power and the confusion as to exactly what comes next. But it must be terrifying. It, it can't really be underestimated how, how much strength it must take for someone to actually make that make those first steps. One thing I've always noticed is when I've had cases that have come up, lined up, I know I've got an appointment coming up, and obviously, diligent worker, you do what you do. You do your research on someone before they turn up and find out what you can. Almost without fail, the cases that you get and you find someone has serious 
childhood trauma or significant issues in the past, long histories of non-compliance, possibly even aggression towards staff, almost without fail. When I've actually gone down to deal with those people, they've been actually quite engaging and relatively polite and easy to deal with. But it's the cases where you look at on the surface of they seem very unsuspecting and they're the ones that can catch you off guard because you've not had it in the back of you you've not that you've let your guard down perhaps yeah but that you've you've still not gone in and given each case the due full attention that you perhaps should but you you can be caught out quite sharply at times again i've I've touched upon this in previous episodes but a a lot of what i do is around the world of of trauma-informed care understanding what people bring with them often to do with their past traumas and, and studies have always highlighted just how much that people, with, particularly with multiple and complex needs, haven't just woke up one day and decided, I'm in this situation. It's a result of years and years of entrenched trauma that often begins in their childhood, compounded into adulthood. And sometimes, we, we might not like to admit this, but sometimes some of that trauma that gets compounded is when they've tried to access services in the past, and maybe they've not had the best experience not because services are going out there trying to harm people but just the very nature of how we are set up to respond to behaviors and demand information rather than understand why behaviors happen and try and gather information in a more sensitive way means that people have been missed and i always remind people that when when people are coming to us we ha- have to think about what are they bringing with them what has been their past experience and how is that going to shape how they see you because even as a person there to help, smile my face, that person might be ready to kick off at any moment, not because they are trying to be difficult or challenging. It's because, again, that survival mode has kicked into the head and gone, I need to get out of here. So with this discussion around trauma, then, I think this is probably the best time to bring in our guest, because part of uh, what our guest will be discussing is around the need to take this trauma-informed approach in everything that we do, particularly in those initial engagements. Okay, welcome to this week's guest. So we go, we will start with who are you and what is your role? So I'm Amanda Chalmers and my role is trauma-informed practice lead. Um, I have got a position with the Changing Futures Project. We, it's within South Tees and South Tees covers two council areas. So there's Middlesbrough Council and Red Car and Cleveland Council. So it's things like recovery services, um, you know, drug and alcohol, it's homeless and housing, it is um, domestic violence. So it's all of the partners that come within the services as well. From, I guess, from your perspective, why is this subject so important to you then? From as far back as I can remember, I've always been interested in why people do the things that they do, particularly things when they're hurting other people or themselves. Because, you know, what does it take for a human being to actually want to do that? So with sort of my knowledge of psychology, I've always gone to anything from that point of view. And luckily, and I say luckily because it was an amazing opportunity, an amazing job. I worked in HMP Home House doing drug and alcohol recovery. But me being me, I didn't approach it from the drug and alcohol side of things. I approached it from why would somebody want to do what they were doing? Why did they behave in that way? Where would they come from? A bit like Gabor Mate, where there's always a pain behind the addiction. So what I used to do is when I was first meeting anybody that I had to assess, I sort of used to put the assessment to one side because I just thought me sitting and asking a whole load of questions, I wasn't going to get to the real nitty gritty of what I wanted. And what I wanted to do was really understand as to what had happened to them, how they'd got to come to where they were today. And in some cases, a revolving door of in and out of the criminal justice system. So when they used to come in for the assessment with me, the first thing I used to do was just make them feel safe. So I used to let them sit down first in the room and ask where they'd like me to sit. Did they want me to sit across the table? Would they prefer me to sit next to them? Where did they feel safe? And then I used to tell them basically that within those four four walls, that was a safe space. Everything was confidential unless they were going to hurt themselves or hurt anyone else. I didn't have to tell anyone. 
Um, it went on a system where only we could see it. It wasn't open to the prison. Just to give them that safe space where they could feel that they could talk to me about as much or as little as they wanted. And then I used to ask them to tell me their story and ask them, like, you know, what, what happened? How did you get to come to where you are today? And some of the stories I used to hear were horrific. And they did used to sort of blurt out everything that they, they maybe never told anyone before. And then you could see that this big sort of sigh of relief afterwards. And they would actually say, I've never told anyone that before. But I think for me, the light bulb moment and the most amazing and empowering thing that it did for this human being was it made them understand as to why they'd got to where they'd got in life. And I actually used to turn it around and say to them, now do you understand why you've got to where you've got to and why you're doing what you're doing. They just didn't, they'd never thought of it in that way and nobody had spoken to them about it that way. And it was a case of, right, well, let's deal with all of that because then everything else will will be easier to deal with once you've dealt with that and we stop putting a sticking plaster over things like drug and alcohol. You know, we used to work on on sort of the all the underneath stuff with them. But because then they, they felt safe, each intervention, each session that I did with them, they came in really open to do work with me. And we used to, it used to be a case of educating them and validating them as human beings. So they'd gone through a lot of their life feeling that they weren't worthy of anything and they were bad and, and no good. And even just turning around and saying, them, no, you're not bad. You, you are worthy. Think about where you've come from and what happened to you. There's reasons as to why you've behaved in the way you've behaved. And it doesn't excuse it, but it does give you a reason behind it. So I think that's that's sort of like where everything started for me. And that's where my passion came from. And obviously, I've moved into the position I've got now. And part of it is that I'm blessed to be able to go out and, and still talk to some of our service users and demonstrate how to make people feel safe to um, you know, the staff that I'm working with. So again, it's just a case of, you know, as soon as I enter a room, it's explaining who I am and why I'm there and being really transparent and placing myself where they where they feel safe with me and where they want me um, and just building that trust straight away. And then using validation is a massive tool, but it does come from a genuine place. That's the thing. Whatever I say is validation. It's totally genuine. So for instance, a young girl who... You know, she had to give up her two sons because she knew she couldn't take care of them. So she gave them to their dad to look after. And I could see the pain. And and, but genuinely, because I'm a mom, I felt it. And I said to her, how amazing are you as a mom, though, to give your two children to somebody else to look after? Because you know you can't and you're doing the best for them. Nobody had ever said that to her before. She'd felt worthless. She'd feel like a bad, she'd felt like a bad mom and she'd had no help. And obviously it was that sort of genetic trauma where come through from her mom, she'd never had a nurturing and a, and a mom who would show her how to be a mom. But this girl had done the best thing she could do for her children. And I talked to her about that and, and really sort of validated how amazing she really was. And you could just see how empowering that was for her. And hopefully, well, I do know that she was going to set up a meeting with the little boys to visit, which is really lovely because she probably sort of give up some of that guilt and shame that she'd felt. What are some of the challenges you you see or maybe even hear from staff members then around these initial mm-hmm. engagements, these relationship building? I think, well, it's, you know, it's natural for people who work in this type of area to want to save people. And I think there's been a massive misconception of my title as well. And I think they think I'm going in to save people. And I keep saying to, you know, we're not there to save people, we're there to support people. And I think the biggest thing we can do is educate people on who they are as a person um, and help them understand things like what, what anxiety is, help them understand what the attachment theory is, adverse childhood experiences. So my biggest challenge, I think, has been educating staff on all of those areas so that they can go in um, to meetings with people and not try and save them, just try and support them in understanding who they are and where they've come from. So that maybe they can move forward with more of an understanding of themselves. Plus, I think the other thing for me is, is owning me. And it's enormous. It's a huge task that I'm having to sort of deliver. Because of my passion, I'm happy to do it. And I'm up for the challenge. But what I've found I've needed to do is to pull together a delivery group so that I get all of the key people from the organisations I'm working with in one room 
talk about how we're going to implement trauma-informed care and what the hot topic for that meeting is. And then they go back to their organisations and look at how it should feel for them. So I'm working with them in a very trauma-informed way, not telling them what to do, um, sort of supporting them and asking them to see how it would feel in their services and how they think that it should be done. And then I'll go in and support them around that. What would you say is the, the perhaps the gaps in people's knowledge or training around relationship building? When we're talking about, particularly when we're working with people who have substance issues, I think there's a, we, we fly in and try and stick put a sticking plaster over that, over the drug or the alcohol, but we don't, a lot of people do not understand the psychology behind it and focus on that. But I think that's sort of a general thing. You know, if you think about doctors, mental health professionals, a lot of people go in and and try and fix the symptoms. They don't actually try and fix what's what's causing those symptoms behind it. And I I don't know whether it's just sort of, that's how it's always been done, um, or whether there is gaps in, in sort of knowledge, I'm not too sure. But I'm hoping that with what I'm doing, even if for now it's just in the South Tees area, that I can sort of spread my knowledge I have got some champions coming on board that we're going to get trained and I will be sort of passing on my knowledge as well as, you know, getting other people involved in some of their training as well so that they can go out into their organisations and start breeding a different culture, start changing the way that people think about how people behave, because I do think that's important. And I think even, you know, you think about receptionists and security guards, you get somebody coming in who's very angry I want them to be able to think, well, why are they behaving like that? And how can I handle this in a different way? Rather than giving them the usual response that they get of, right, if you don't calm down, off you go. And that just sort of backs up what they think about themselves, that they're not worthy and nobody wants to listen to them. So I am hoping that with what I'm doing, I am going to sort of spread a little bit of knowledge. What would you say be your top tips? I think from a staff point of view, they've not got to overthink it. They've got to think about it's customer service, isn't it? If we go back to the basics of it, it is customer service. So we've got to think about if we went into a shop, how do we want to be trapped? What would make us feel safe? Think about the environment. Think about the person you know we're talking to. What makes us feel safe? And go in and just be that human with a human. It's about meeting that person where they are as well. We're not trying to save them. They might not want saving right now. They might just want somebody to listen to them and for them to be able to tell their story. So I would say go into, go into a room with somebody, think about how you want to be treated, be very genuine with sort of who you are, because people can pick up when you're not being genuine. So be very genuine about it and just try and, and make the best connection you can on whatever level you can with that human being you've got in, in the room, you know, because we can heal them. Um, but we can heal them with our compassion and with our time. When I'm talking to the organisations I'm working with, the problem we have is that caseloads are huge. And to do anything in a trauma-informed way, for me, you need to be giving people time. And if you're giving people a 10, 15-minute sort of slot in your day, for me, is that long enough? Mm-hmm. And when we're asking them to come to... Um, somewhere where they don't feel safe and they don't feel comfortable do we not need to start thinking outside of the box so for organizations these are the sort of things I've been saying to them you know we need to start thinking outside the box we need to start thinking innovatively about how we can get people to engage and to change that culture of well they come to us and when they don't um, attend we'll give them three chances and then we'll discharge them all of that sort of thing really is the culture that we've always had But now we need to start thinking that it's not what's wrong with them. It's what's wrong with us as a service. Why are people not coming to us? And that's it's a a massive sort of change in culture and change in thought process, not just for staff, but for organisations. Because I think in some ways you've got to be brave to really blow this out of the water and really be trauma-informed in practice because it's absolutely different to how we've ever worked, especially in drug and alcohol-type situations. Like I say, we, we expect people to come in and behave how we want them to behave, and they'll sit and they'll listen to all these lovely interventions, and people work so hard 
but it falls on deaf ears sometimes because that's not where they're at. And I'm hoping that, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm self-teased at the minute, but I'm hoping this is going to spread right, right across the UK and that we can make this a change because I think for people's lives, it enhances what we do, but it makes a huge difference to people if we can get them to engage and if we can get them to feel that we're meeting them where they are and we're just not trying to fix what they don't want fixing right now. Amanda, um, do you want to just tell us a bit more if, if people would like to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, changing futures, it is UK wide. Um, not everybody has got a trauma informed practice lead like myself. But if anyone is wanting to get in touch, then I'm happy for people to um, sort of email. So it's Amanda underscore Chalmers at middlesbrough.gov.uk happy for people to contact me through through my email address but like I say if you if people google changing futures they'll be able to find out all the information on there it is sort of a massive funding a lot of funding that's come from government and the funding is to enhance people's lives so there's certain process flaws and one of them I'm process five which is trauma-informed care and I think when I came onto this what I made it very clear was it's not a ticky box we're not just doing training we are actually going to put it into practice. So it, it's huge. And I think it's more than maybe anyone thought it was going to be. But I'm happy to take on the challenge for the South Tees area for now. And um, hopefully in a couple of years time, we can actually say that the organisations I'm working with are trauma-informed and practising it. And the longevity of it will be there because of our champions as well that will get on board. Thank you very much, Amanda, for being our guest this week. Thank you. And we wish you all the best with your culture change. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back. That was this week's guest discussing a trauma-informed approach. So in this final part, I think what it's worth discussing is, is, is really building on what it means to respond in a way that we might not always have a clue what's going on below the surface and try and do our best to give this human approach. So I think it's probably worth at this point thinking, particularly in those early engagements, let's primarily focus on where you've got maybe a little bit more leeway, that more of a voluntary sort of engagement. But let's think about what what is the good practice? First first things first, be honest, be, be realistic. There's nothing worse when you're working with people is over-promising and under-delivering. There's absolutely nothing worse. That would be the bane of any sort of service because, yes, it's it's there's always a long, hard process to anything, whether you're trying to deal with someone's alcohol drug issue, whether you're sorting out a housing issue, or whether it's another mental health concern. There aren't There are no quick fixes. Nothing will be done immediately, but there will be a series of incremental benefits where you hopefully will get to where you want to go. And it's being brave enough and being open enough to actually make that point outright that, yes, it's going to be really difficult. Yes, there will be hard times and times where people may want to quit, but it's the perseverance and the making sure that you stick with doing what you need to be doing that gets you to those places of benefit. It would Everything would be better if there were simple answers to everything. But unfortunately, there aren't, and, and, and difficult steps and difficult actions are needed to make things that are worthwhile. It's almost like the lack of the human connection, or the human connection isn't the primary thing. It's the paperwork. It's the risk information. It's all this other stuff. What do I then do with this, with this person? What's available to this person? I think we almost focus on the initial bits, trying to manage that that risk, that referral information. And then we try and worry about that next bit of what can I then do with this person? I think so much of it needs to be focused on that actual engagement. When you are in that room with that other human being, and again, that might be an informal process, just going for a walk with someone. It might be sat in some form of, I hate the term, interview room, assessment room, you know, just a a room basically. I think, again, the language, the language is really important because even calling it, an assessment or an interview. Think about those words. What does that word mean for you if you hear an assessment or an interview? I'm already on the back foot. And I think services, we need to get better at just saying, why don't you come in for a bit of a chat, a conversation? Let's have an initial engagement. Whatever term has to be considered because that human element is so, so important. And it's important we need to consider it from our point of view. Because I mentioned earlier on, if we if we consider how taking this approach, this human first approach, it benefits us. 
because you're less likely to get someone in front of you who's angry, upset, disguised compliance, fighting us at every turn. And we're more likely to get another human being who sees us as a human being and go, oh, right, the, the power's still there, but they've addressed it. I get it. I'm going to open up. I, I still might hold some bits back, but I'm probably going to get a better experience than I thought. From a study undertaken in 2021 by Sweeney called Evidence-Based Guidelines for Conducting Trauma-Informed Talking Therapy Assessment. So again, not everyone would describe what they do as a therapy, but I think what that research really highlighted for me is the importance of a pre-assessment check-in or a pre-engagement check-in. So even though someone's come to us for help and support, the danger is the pen and the paper comes out and we go straight in. Oh, hi, how are you? I'm Dave, nice to meet you. Let's have a conversation. So tell me about your children. Tell me about your drug use. And I think sometimes what we need to do is give a bit more of a human response. How are you doing today? How are you feeling today? Because if that person tells you they're having the worst day ever, you might sit there and go, you know what? If I assess you right now, we're not going to have a good experience here. You're not going to have a good experience. No one's going to win. And actually, is it in my gift to offer that person maybe another appointment at a later date? Again, not, I, I get not every service has that. If it's to do with getting someone into drug and alcohol treatment or to do with housing waiting lists, I get it. It's not always that easy. I think it's if you have that ability, even maybe giving someone an extra 10 minutes to calm their ner nerves, relax them. Should we have a cup of tea first? Have a chat. Or even as we did at the beginning, oh, I'm going to bring it up again. We shouldn't do because I'm now thinking about it. But bringing up things like football or other hobbies or interests, you know, just something to almost break that ice. And what's, what's interesting about this piece of research as well, it also talks about um, you should almost have a checkout as well. Again, we are I get we're all busy. We, we don't have a ton of time, but I think it's important when we finish these processes, it's just, you know, putting everything to one side at the end and just, how are you doing? How, how have you felt after that? Because something might have triggered off that person. You know, they, they might be thinking, they might be in a really low mood. And we might be in a position to say, can I get you some extra support? Can I contact someone or you know worst case scenario some sort of crisis support because we are opening up a lot of information and i think we need to think about their, their safety so so much it also talks about always come back to an organic process and i really like this idea again we often see assessments or engagements as the paperwork you know i'm waving a pen as we speak and the the, the paper, I've got to ask these questions verbatim. And I think the more we understand what we're trying to ask and we try and ask it in an organic way, the better. I always think of this example. I was supporting someone access help and we went to the service and I remember I came along because they were really struggling mentally and I was sat in the background and the guy conducting the assessment was terrible. Name no names, but terrible. He was typing everything directly into the computer. There was no eye contact. And this person said, they were really anxious and they said, can I talk to you about uh, my children to begin with? Because it's been playing in my head. And the guy said, uh, sorry, we can't do that. It's on page four. We're only on page one. And I just thought it was an opportunity then to build that relationship up and say, tell me, yeah, of course. Why? Because that person was so anxious. They needed to get it off their chest. But instead, what had happened is this person said, no, I have the power. I'm typing away. I'm not even giving you that, that engagement. And we'll get to it when we get to it. After that session, me and this client, we I, I had to speak to her for about half an hour just to bring her levels down because she was so on edge. She was so stressed. Everything she worried about happened in that moment. And I remember even trying to step in and say, look, can, can I just say that she really needs to talk about it? And I, as the professional, was told to basically mind my place and be told I'm there to observe and not engage. It was a horrible experience all around this research really highlights all of that those key areas and understanding the the emotions that come with it particularly from trauma survivors if they've gone through systems and services before fear anxiety shame i always again we don't do enough uh, as a society to understand how powerful shame is and um, as an emotion to put you off or to stop you from opening up. We all feel shame in some way. And it's a horrible feeling that manifests itself in so many different ways. When it's coming out in an assessment, because let's face it, sometimes they are designed to do that. It can be humiliating for the individual. So it's a, it's a range of all these negative emotions. But one of the things that this piece of research talks about that I think is fantastic is always remember 
that people have like a fragile sense of hope. They are coming to us for a reason. They are coming there believing maybe, even if I'm thinking this won't go anywhere, I'm here. The back of my head, there might be a tiny part of me that is hopeful something might come out of this. If we can realize that that is genuine and find a way of building that hope up, maybe, just maybe, we all have a better experience. I still can't get that thought out of my mind of someone shutting down an, an earnest attempt to speak about something. <laughs> it's that that's appalling, yeah. genuinely appalling. And and to be the so-called professional, be told to uh, excuse me, just you know, we, we've got to do the system, we've got to do it a certain way. And and unfortunately, in that moment, I knew that if I pushed it too far, it would have affected her chance to get the service she needed. But afterwards, I was—I remember speaking to like a colleague afterwards. I was blue in the face. I was like, "Who? Who does he think he is?" You know, all of this, this, this emotion came because even though it wasn't affecting me, the 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 emotions I felt, my empathy from seeing the client I was trying to support be put in that situation was horrible, absolutely horrible. It stuck with me, and that was that was probably about fifteen years ago. That, but it's absolutely stuck with me all these years later. Know your materials. Know why you need to get to the root of these um, uh, issues or questions or why you need to get that specific information. And when it comes to the most delicate situations, try to get there in the fewest moves possible. Yeah. I've always, I don't know particularly why this was always my um, technique of doing things, but I think the very first interview that I ever did, and I think it's it's just stuck with me. It's not, it's not exactly, it'll change for every single one. But again, like I mentioned before, uh, my career, criminal justice, and I've sat in and shadowed lots of clients. There's no right or wrong way of doing an interview. Well, there are several wrong ways, but there's no right way of doing wrong ways, as we've just yeah. discussed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you you can you can jump in at any point, assuming you know the materials. As long as you get everything you need to do, you can jump in at any point. And I'd shadowed lots of um, people who'd started off first things first. Okay. What is it that you've done that's brought you to the court? Blah, blah, blah. What, what, what is the, the, the actual matter at hand? And on a personal note, it just struck me that, as we said before, there's a power differential there, more so in, in a court-based setting because you know, you're interviewing you know, 99 times out of 100, you'll be in a suit and the other person's just in their day-to-day clothes. So that sets off a, a differential there. That's immediate barrier. Um, and again, it's an, an interview or assessment. So there's the fear of judgment on top of the, the, the thing of being very soon in front of a judge, bringing even more judgment. So, you know, people will be more often than not on the defensive. To try and get someone to open up about something that could be, as you rightly said before, so filled with shame and such a shameful circumstance. Hmm. I always thought that that, in my head, it just seemed to me that that seemed like a a perfect way to either make or break a conversation and possibly more likely break. People may, will just clam up if you want them to talk about that, that sort of thing. So it always became my way of just trying to engage people in just general chit-chat about their day-to-day life. But, it's, it, but it is, it's, it's finding that human connection in that mm. moment to, to, to demonstrate that you, you're there to do a job but you, you're doing this for a reason. Let, let's face it, we all work in this, this field for a reason, whether it's statutory or voluntary. There is a, a belief of trying to do something good, trying to help, trying to make a difference. And I think if we can demonstrate a bit of that, we still, let's be honest, there will still be people who will be frustrated, will fight against it, will see as the bad guy, and we can't change that. But what we can do, those that can maybe be changed, we can we can show them the best side of us. We can show them that we're here to support. It's just again, as you say, the, the the whole human process built in that rapport. I often say to people like, do you always have to do it in a formal like meeting room? I often hear build, buildings have an assessment room, and it's often two cold chairs in a horrible room that's really clinical. And it's like, can you not gather this information in a more informal setting? Obviously, you need that confidentiality and that privacy, but maybe something with a sofa in that's a bit more warm and welcome that feels like a, I guess like a, a living room or something, or can you go for a walk with that individual walk around a park where there's not many people, you've got a bit of privacy, but you're doing it in a more casual way. Cause you often hear people, don't you? And we've probably all had this in our own personal lives with partners or friendships 
we often open up when we are like on a car journey or walking together because you, you, your brain's kind of already doing other bits. And so hopefully that anxiety is dropped. And I think the more we create these formal settings where you have to come in and, and sit there and do, go through these things, the harder it becomes. I do get that there will be people listening to this saying, yes, but I work in this service and we have targets. We don't have time. We've got to like get people through like a conveyor belt. I get that those are the challenges, but I just think where you have an opportunity to soften things, what can we do about it? What can we do to make it feel a bit more human? And when you're gathering the information, I always think about person-centered, strength-based People are so used to maybe being told what's wrong with them. Particularly, I, I go back to working with people with, with addiction problems. They're so used to being told drugs are bad, alcohol's bad, don't do it. Don't do it, it's bad, it's wrong, you're making wrong decisions. I think we're in such a privileged position to tell me what's right. You know, what, where are your strengths? What, what's good about you? What have you if, if you've stopped in the past, why did you stop? What was good about it? Not why did you relapse? Why did you fail? Tell me what the good things were. Again, what that can do is it can shock people in a good way because they are waiting for the worst case scenario of us delving into their life and suddenly throw up a different person-centered, strengths-based way of doing things can suddenly make that person feel a little bit more welcoming. And again, as I said right at the beginning, we're reducing that power imbalance as much as possible. So this, this episode has very, been very much about, think about that initial engagement that we can have with people. And I think future episodes, one will revisit some of the areas we've talked about today. So again, we haven't really gone into um, how we create that sense of safety, particularly how we validate people's experiences in, in, in depth. You know, we, we've touched upon it, but I think there's great things to go into there. Again, that power imbalance, there's great things within there that we'll touch upon in later episodes. And I also think... So those people who listen to this, who have those longer term relationships with people that they work with, who might work with them for months upon months or even just weeks, I think it's worth thinking about how we not just build relationships, but maintain them as well. We really want to hear your thoughts from those that listen to this podcast. And we know we're only three episodes in, but all these ideas that that me and Andrew had discussed, we're just, we're throwing them out there. And we really would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I think to, to just build on what we've just said, there's never a a hundred percent right way of doing. It. There are definitely wrong ways of doing things, of course. But we want to hear all the different things out there, the good practice. And if there's any way that we could read those out and share things, or invite you on for a future guest, we would love to hear from you as well. So please do get in touch. So I think at this point, I just want to say thank you very much one last time for listening to Frontline. My name has been David Gill. I've been Andrew James. This has been Frontline. <laughs>